<clears throat> so good morning. Uh, the, this first um, uh, presentation will be on religion, faith, and the sublime. Now, I know that um, uh, recently I've been very much associated with uh, the movement that's called uh, secular Buddhism. And that's a kind of um, growing tendency within a number of people who are drawn to the practice of meditation, particularly the different mindfulness traditions, and also people who are drawn to um, certain Buddhist values, maybe ethical values, uh, who are drawn perhaps to certain doctrinal or philosophical ideas, like shunyata, emptiness, or the middle way, or whatever, but get a little bit uncomfortable or unstuck, or rather more bluntly, put off by um, a fair amount of what they might call religious belief, metaphysical belief, which is somehow expected of you, the simplest example is perhaps believing in reincarnation and things like that. And a such a community which is slowly forming um, is one that's trying to somehow articulate a, a coherent vision of what a Dharma practice might be, a Buddhist practice if you wish but one that is rooted and not in the uh, beliefs and the assumptions of what we might call Indian cosmology. Because all of these things like uh, rebirth and the law of karma, different realms of existence, so gods and hungry ghosts and so on, these are simply the... Uh, the, um, the worldview of um, all major Indian religions, whether you're a Brahmin or Hindu, a Jain priest or monk. This is uh, the worldview that you would share uh, with those who in India would also have considered themselves Buddhists. So in other words, these kinds of beliefs uh, are not uh, exclusively Buddhist ones, which suggests, at least to me, that they're not uh, intrinsic to the understanding or the practice of the Dharma. This doesn't mean that they're therefore wrong. What it means is that we perhaps don't need to take them into account, uh, that they're not actually... Um, uh, essential for us to lead um, a fully um, realized ethical, contemplative, and philosophical life. And that's my rendition of what are traditionally called the three trainings. Martin mentioned these yesterday, the training in morality, in meditation, and wisdom. That's the usual translation. 
but I feel that to broaden that somewhat, to think of it in terms of ethics, in other words, our whole perspective on what it means to lead a good and flourishing life, which is more than just morals, although that's part of it. Contemplation, which I find in a sense is a more useful word than meditation, uh, because it includes um, reflection, it includes uh, deeper states of, of absorption, uh, it includes a kind of inner stillness and silence that somehow I feel a little bit more inclusive than the word meditation. And philosophy, rather than wisdom, but philosophy not in the sense that we might study it uh, in a university today, but philosophy as understood um, by the Greeks, um, the ancient Greeks, for whom philosophy really was a love, uh, philo, of Sophia, wisdom. And philosophy was not seen in those days as uh, merely about gaining some kind of uh, correct understanding of how the world worked or what the nature of the mind was. But philosophy was inseparable from a practice that led to a kind of inner healing or resolution of one's soul, of one's psyche. psyche. So in that sense, I feel that um, uh, what uh, many people in the contemporary world are seeking is not <clears throat> another religion like Christianity or Hinduism or traditional Buddhism, but rather a way of life that um, integrates ethics, contemplation, and philosophy. But having presented that very, very rough sketch of what uh, the secular Buddhist movement, whatever that is, um, might be stumbling towards. I've excluded the word religion. And religion is, of course, a word that is notoriously difficult to define. Um, it, when I was younger, which is a long time ago now, uh, <laughs> religion in the dictionaries was simply described as... Uh, uh, a, a way of life based on the belief in a deity or a god. But um, this nowadays is not an acceptable definition. And one of the reasons is because Buddhism, to all extents and purposes, is a religion. I challenge you, anyone who doubts that, just get on the next plane to Bangkok or, or Lhasa or Tokyo and go to a Buddhist temple and tell me that this is not a religion. Of course it is. It functions as a religion just in the same way that Christianity functions as a religion in our society. So religion, therefore, um, seems to stand for two things. On the one hand, at the baby, the popular end of the scale, it has to do with certain organized forms of belief, which usually tend to include the practice of certain rituals that often are embedded in sacred texts and 
institutions that almost invariably come to be governed or ruled by a hierarchy of priests or monks or whatever they're called in that particular tradition. And it's uh, undeniable that historically Buddhism has functioned as such an entity. But it seems to me that we're actually only scratching the surface of religion when we think of it in that way. And I think a lot of the aversion that people have to religion is an aversion to particular institutional forms or particular kinds of, of unprovable dogmatic beliefs. But that, I think, is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think the question that is worth asking here is what were, these, what were these things that we think of as religions? Uh, what, where did they come from? What kinds of human needs were they um, seeking to address? And I think if we can answer that question, you know, where do these religious institutions and beliefs and practices and rituals come from at the beginning? we might get a little closer to what lies at the heart of being a religious person. Now, we can look at, whoops, we can look at this in different ways. But I'd like to start with a kind of working definition uh, of what it means to be religious. And that would be um, to think of a life, a human life, that has a deep concern with uh, coming to terms with one's own birth and death. Um, coming to terms, we might also say, reconciling ourselves to. And... It's in this sense, I feel, that we might see the first beginnings or the first stirrings of a consciousness that we might call religious. Now, if you don't like the word religious, then find a better one. I can't, I'm afraid. Uh, the word religion does seem to have a resonance and a power, even if you don't consider yourself as identifying with any particular religion. There's a, a sense that is probably common to all human beings that becomes particularly pronounced at moments when you are shocked or forced into a recognition of your mortality. And it may be, for example, around the death of a parent or a, a close friend or a, a lover or a child that your everyday assumptions and preferences and interests uh, are suddenly suspended and something greater than all those uh, concerns imposes itself almost on your consciousness. You become 
acutely aware that you too are mortal, that you too one day will breathe out and not breathe in again. And in the presence of death, um, it's very difficult, I think, to uh, completely ignore that. And there's a quality that I've found very often around uh, bereavement, for example, where people's lives seem to access a particular depth, um, a particular kind of stillness, a particular kind of contemplative quality that in much of our everyday busy lives is completely absent. And that quality, that sense of contemplative uh, depth, that sense also of uh, of life being something profoundly strange and mysterious, and yet at the same time something very fragile and temporary, evokes for me a feeling that I can only call religious. And it's in this sense uh, that I feel that people then begin to ask the sorts of questions that traditionally religions have tried to answer. I think one could possibly say that all of the major world religions, and even the new religions that have sprung up more recently, at some level, they're all attempts to provide answers to these deep questions that stir in us when we are moved by our own humanity, our own mortality, our own fact of having been born having been being subject to sickness and aging and so on. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, um, this experience is very beautifully uh, conveyed by the legend of the young Prince Siddhartha who grows up in this luxurious palace and then at a certain point in his life, we don't quite know when, um, he, he begins to want to know what goes on outside the palace. And so his father arranges a tour, a visit to uh, the, the, the lands of the kingdom and tries to you know, make sure that the young man doesn't see anything untoward that might upset him, uh, much in the same way as we prepare visits for our queen and other heads of state. We tidy everything up. The Queen must have a very weird idea of what England is actually like. But, um, but it's well-intentioned. But in any case, of course, in the story of the Buddha, uh, or the Bodhisattva at this point, um, when he goes out of the palace, he does encounter a sick person, an aging person, and a corpse. And on each occasion... Um, he turns to his charioteer and he says, what's all this about? As though he's never seen it before, which is, of course, a bit ridiculous. And the charioteer says, oh, this is birth, sorry, this is sickness, this is an old person, this is death, and this will happen to all of us. Now, this is a legend, 
it's certainly, there's no um, text in the early canon that uh, suggests the Buddha ever did this. But it's a very powerful human myth. And its mythic power lies in the fact that we can all identify with it. That all of us probably, especially if we've chosen to spend a week in a place like this doing meditation, the chances are we've had comparable experiences of our own. We've had certain moments in our life that have thrown everything else into question. And they're going to be different for each person, obviously. But something has awoken within us that has given rise to a certain urgency, a certain deep passion or concern with the deep questions of life. You know, what's it all about? Where's it going? Who am I? What is this? Questions that kind of bring the mind to a stop. The, 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 the conceptual, the intellectual mind simply can't cope with those kinds of questions. And religions are in the business of saying, hey, we've got the answers. Um, you know, so you then check out Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism and Rastafarianism or whatever it might be. But the point is I think that the institutions of religion and the belief systems of religion often serve to neutralize those questions by replacing them with a set of beliefs. And that can be very, very consoling. It can be a huge relief uh, and one can understand why you know, religion continues to be very popular, even though many of its traditional beliefs are now considered um, highly questionable. Because what it does is it responds to that deep questioning. So the, the young bodhisattva's um, uh, excursion outside his comfortable home awoke within him certain fundamental questions. And at that point, his life, one might say, um, became infused with a religious sensibility, um, a, a, a deep need to come to terms with these questions. And I like the expression, come to terms with, not get final answers to but come to terms with these questions, to find a way in which we can live with these questions rather than either suppressing them, ignoring them, distracting ourselves from them, or replacing them with a, with a set of religious beliefs. So one might say that a secular approach to Buddhism, say, is more founded on questions and remaining true to those questions than substituting them with beliefs. That might be a helpful way to proceed. Now, another language that I found helpful in, um, in clarifying uh, the nature of such questions um, has to, uh, is a term borrowed from uh, the Christian theologian uh, Paul Tillich, 
Uh, he's not so well known these days outside of theology departments. Uh, T-I-L-L-I-C-H, Tillich. Um, he was a refugee from Hitler. He was a theologian working in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. And he was very much influenced by existentialist philosophy. And one of the terms that he used was the term uh, ultimate concern. Ultimate concern. Ultimate concern was Tillich's definition of faith. Faith for Tillich was not about uh, believing something impossible, but it was about the state of being ultimately concerned. And he took this further, he took it um, to uh, develop uh, his whole idea of what it meant by God. Uh, for Tillich, a God was that about which one is ultimately concerned. Uh, rather than trying to define God in some metaphysical sense. He put the emphasis back on the, on the subject, on the human person. You know, what is it that I'm ultimately concerned about? Uh, needless to say, Tillich um, was not enormously popular with fundamentalist Christians. And in fact, towards the end of his life, he was accused of becoming a Buddhist. And, and I think perhaps the reasons for that is precisely because Buddhism is traditionally a religion without a metaphysical conception of God. And it's a religion that's very much concerned with the authenticity of experience. Um, and these questions about the meaning of life and so on are thereby considered to be ways uh, things that need to be cultivated. Uh, we need to refine these questions. Uh, this becomes particularly explicit in the practice of Zen, in Zen Buddhism, particularly when it speaks of koans, these rather riddle-like puzzles. You know, the famous ones are, what is the sound of one hand? In other words, questions for which Again, there is no rational answer. And what the koan practice does, and towards, as the week proceeds, Martin will introduce a, a koan practice. What these practices do is give primacy to the questions rather than primacy to the answers. Buddhism has got loads of answers, like all religions but very often loses sight of the questions uh, that were originally asked. And at some level, uh, this kind of questioning um, goes beyond um, any formulation in words. And again, that's one of the reasons I like Tillich's expression. It's a state of being ultimately concerned. Um, it's not um, <clears throat> necessarily being concerned about any specific thing, but it's a concern about what it means to be, 
what it means to be in this world, what it means to exist, what it means to breathe. And to be able to hold that in a state of puzzlement, of wonder, of deep curiosity, and to take that question uh, with, with total seriousness, to take your life seriously, that, I think, is a religious act. Uh, and that alone, I think, is sufficient to, um, uh, to, to, to qualify as being a religious person. Even though you may not use that word, even though you might be put off by all manifestations of religion as we come across them in the world today. So this is what I mean by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's easy to reject religion as being superstitious or whatever words we use, but we then risk um, rejecting something that might be a very, very real concern for us, but we don't have a framework or a language in which to express it or to articulate it, and we certainly uh, uh, would not have a practice, a formal practice, like meditation, for example, that would serve as a kind of uh, medium or a kind of a crucible or vessel in which to uh, work with and come to terms with these questions. So in, the, in this way, um, we might think of what we're doing in this week um, is, is, is allowing the space and, and, the, and the safety, you know, the sort of protected and, 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 and stable space that's, that's supported both by the, um, by the schedule, by the building, by the silence, and also, of course, by the formal uh, practices that we do as a means whereby to open ourselves up to what it is that matters most deeply for us. And in that sense, I think we tap into the origins of what has become religion. But if we don't like the word religion, then find another word that works for you. And if it's a really good one, let me know. <laughs> Now, to, as a starting point, I'd like to, um, I'd like to uh, consider um, a passage <clears throat> uh, from the Sangyutta Nikaya. The, I'm going to be using all these funny words. Um, the Sangyutta Nikaya is, is, the, is the, one of the volumes within the Pali Canon, which for many people is considered to be the earliest collection of texts um, attributed to the historical Buddha. And in the Sanyutta, which li li literally means the connected discourses, um, we find a section which has to do with um, mindfulness of breathing. And I'm going to just look at one passage here. What um, seems to have been the case at the Buddha's time is that people were curious as to what kind of meditation the Buddha 
did. Um, you know, they would... Well, you're aware that, for example, during the summer, when it rains in India, you have the monsoon. Um, at the Buddha's time, you couldn't really go anywhere, so the, the monks and the nuns would gather together in these parks and these groves, and they would spend their time meditating, discussing, maybe listening to talks, a bit like what we do here, really. This is a kind of a mini vasa, a mini rains retreat, except we hope it won't rain. And you can imagine that the people around these groups of monks who were providing the food and so on um, might have been puzzled by the fact that, well, why does he have to meditate? You know, the Buddha, hasn't he done all this stuff? Isn't he the Buddha? Can't he just sort of just chill and have a nice time? Why does he have to keep doing all this meditation? So... Um, this led to one of the monks uh, going to the Buddha and saying, look, what, what do we tell these people? When we're asked this question, you know, what should we say? And this is his answer. This is the Buddha speaking. He says, during the rain's residence, friend, the teacher, the Bhagawan, the Buddha, generally dwells in concentration through mindfulness of breathing. For if one could say of anything, this is a noble dwelling, this is a sacred dwelling, this is a Tathagata's dwelling. It is of concentration through mindfulness of breathing that one could truly say this. Now, for some of us, this might come as a bit of a surprise. I mean, you might be familiar with this passage, uh, in which case it won't. But I know that when I first read it, uh, it gave me a bit of a jolt because I expected him to say something a little bit more advanced. You know, I always, well, one gets the impression that mindfulness of breathing is kind of for beginners. That's uh, where you start and then you develop from there and you go on to higher things. But this doesn't seem to be the case. Um, that it seems, in fact, that this mindfulness of breathing is what the Buddha himself did when he was on these three-month retreats, at least if we're to believe what he says, or believe what he's supposed to have said. But he qualifies it, and he qualifies it in a very interesting way. He says that, um, he says, okay, this is what I do. I just stay, I, I just constant, I develop concentration through mindfulness of breathing. But then he explains why. And he gives three reasons. He says this uh, mindfulness of breathing is, is, is a noble dwelling, a sacred dwelling, and a Tathagata's dwelling. I'll explain the word Tathagata in a minute. But what is common in all three of these uh, descriptions is the word dwelling. Uh, the word in Pali, Sanskrit, is vihara. Now, some of us are probably familiar with going to the local vihara. Vihara has come to be used as synonymous with monastery. But what it means is dwelling. It's a place where monks dwell, abide, live. But here, we're obviously not talking about a vihara 
in the sense of uh, bricks and mortar and a place with a roof on it. We're talking of dwelling here in a much more primordial sense. Viharati, which is the verb from which vihara comes, uh, simply means to live, to dwell, to abide. And in that sense, it's something extremely fundamental to any person's life. It's so fundamental, we often don't even think about it. You know, where do you live? You know, where's your dwelling? I mean, we don't say dwelling so much like that in English today. But, you know, vovonensi, vonung in German, a, a dwelling, an abode. And one of the senses in which we have started using this word again is in, in phrases like, how do we dwell on earth? That earth has become something which more and more of us see as our dwelling, as our abode, as where we live. We've become very conscious, particularly in the last 50 or so years, that we're, we're living on this planet that is circling the sun. And we're kind of alone in the universe. We don't know of any other life forms out there yet. Uh, this is really our home. This is our dwelling. This is our vihara. The earth is our vihara now. And the place where you dwell is also the place that you care for. And tomorrow we'll look more at this idea of care. But the two ideas, I think, are intimately related. If we dwell somewhere, there is implicit in that a sense of caring for where we live. So to dwell is perhaps one of these sort of, sort of fundamental ideas that's deeply familiar and yet very difficult to articulate. And in some ways, when we sit and walk um, in meditation, we are uh, coming to terms with the fact that we dwell in this place, that we abide on this cushion, or we walk on that ground. We're talking of something really, really uh, basic to what it means to be a sentient being, basically, is that we dwell somewhere. And it might be helpful um, to reflect on that uh, in the course of today, say, or the next days. You know, how do we live? How do we dwell on this earth? in this room, in this space. So mindfulness of breathing is defined as a kind of dwelling, abiding. We dwell in our breath. And again, the breath is perhaps the most uh, primal and intimate relationship we have with the biosphere, with the atmosphere with the air. And the air, of course, we now know to be only possible because of the photosynthesis of the plants. That we're, 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 we're not just accidentally breathing, we're able to breathe because we have evolved as human creatures 
that are dependent on and are nourished by oxygen. So the breath, this dwelling in the breath, again, highlights uh, this, uh, this natural uh, presence that we're able to experience, this conscious awareness of being here at all. And then the Buddha describes this dwelling in mindful awareness, sorry, dwelling in the mindfulness of the breath, as noble, sacred, and of uh, and pertaining to the Tathagata. Noble, what does that mean? <clears throat> A noble dwelling. Uh, the word in Pali is Arya, uh, a term that unfortunately has rather negative connotations in Europe through the Nazis and so on. But the word literally means elevated, raised up, noble. And I think morally uh, it refers to something we might call dignity. It's a very dignified way to dwell in just sitting, in being aware of your breath. So this gets us out of the idea that the breath is just a kind of mechanical bellows action that goes on in our lungs. Although that, of course, is one way of looking at it. But it doesn't at all um, capture the, the dignity of breathing or being mindful of breathing. I remember when I was, um, you know, some years ago now, um, just beginning to sort of become aware of things like Buddhism. One of the images that always uh, impressed me was that of uh, monks or nuns, or also Buddha images too, uh, sitting in this particular posture. You know, sitting still, back upright, and um, just being somehow moved by the sheer act of sitting and breathing without doing anything, without saying anything, without moving, and yet embodying something of great dignity and value, um, a sort of quality of humanity that is not much appreciated or, or regarded in the sort of society I grew up in, just sitting still. And my sense is that um, by, by learning just to sort of come to rest in one's breath, uh, to feel grounded on a cushion or a chair, to be able to just sit still for a sustained period of time, um, is in a way about recovering a kind of essential dignity to who we are. A certain uprightness that's in the posture, a certain balance, a certain poise, um, a certain inner stillness that is perhaps expressed through the way our face, our lips, our eyes, 
come into a kind of focused repose or rest. So there's a lot more to being mindful of the breath than just learning to concentrate on a particular object in the body. That's, I think, a rather sort of uh, almost technical way of thinking about meditation. But to me, meditation might include uh, certain techniques that we can learn and we can get good at, but in its essence, it goes beyond proficiency in any kind of technique. Just because I can sit still for 30 minutes and not get distracted from my breath is only one part of what this contemplation is in a way about. It's not about being good at something and scoring brownie points, but it's an integrated part of leading an ethical, contemplative, and philosophical life. The next expression the Buddha uses is um, uh, a sacred dwelling. And the word in Pali is a Brahma Vihara. Now, some of us, I'm sure, are quite familiar with that term, but in a very different context. Usually there are said to be four Brahma Viharas. They're sometimes called divine abodes. In the Tibetan tradition, they call them the four immeasurables. But literally, the word means vihara, dwelling, again, and brahma, which is, or was at the Buddha's time, kind of the the generic word for God. And so a brahma vihara, a sacred or a divine dwelling, might sound, at first glance, to be a bit incongruous with a tradition that doesn't believe in God, or doesn't is not a theistic tradition, at least in the conventional sense. But what is striking about the way the Buddha uses language is that he frequently borrows terms from the culture of his time and gives them a radically new spin, as we would say. I mean, the word Arya is already an example. It referred in the Buddha's time, to the peoples who supposedly emigrated um, from the West or the Northwest and um, populated the Gangetic Basin in about 1500 BC. These people called themselves the Aryans, the nobles. And probably at his time, it referred to these people who thought of themselves as somewhat special. But he takes the term and translates it from an ethnic category into a moral or an ethical category. Nobility's not got to do with who, who, how, where you're born. Like if you're born to a duke or a duchess, you're automatically a noble. But nobility has to do with a quality of mind a quality of being that is open to all. It's not exclusive. And the same he uh, he does with the word Brahma. 
He takes the word sacred, but doesn't use it as a theistic concept. He takes it to suggest, and here I'm guessing a bit because the text don't actually spell this out. But I think he takes it to mean sacred in the sense of something that infinitely transcends us. And again, probably many of us are comfortable with the word sacred, but we may not be comfortable with the word God, or particularly God as defined in certain theistic religions. And yet we don't find it strange to think of, you know, we, we, we would say today quite easily, I think, you know, I consider life to be sacred, for example. But what do we mean when we, we scratch away at this word sacred? When you say life is sacred, human life is sacred, all life is sacred. What do, what do we mean by sacred? And again, it's a bit like dwelling. It's a word that we understand intuitively in a felt way, but the closer we try, the, the, the more we try to explain what we mean, the more difficult it gets. And this is the case with so many fundamental terms. We all know what the time is. I'll tell you, it's 10 to 11. But tell me what time is. This is an old conundrum that goes back to St. Augustine. As long as, long as nobody asked me what time is, you know, I know what the time is. But time or space, dwelling, sacred, dignity, these are all words that have deep resonance and meaning, but are extraordinarily elusive when it comes to trying to pin them down with a definition. So sacred to me suggests something that I hold in deep, almost reverent awe or value. And I think for many people, secular people today, um, uh, what we hold in deep, reverent value is life itself. The fact that life has emerged, as far as we know, out of the earth, really, the sun and the earth. And it's evolved into forms of extraordinary complexity over millions of years. Even for someone like Richard Dawkins, I suspect that evokes a sense of something <coughs> sacred. Something, If something is sacred, it's not something we treat lightly. It's not something we would uh, wish to damage or demean or defile in any way. But we hold it as a kind of non-negotiable value that we seek to lead uh, a life around of great honor and respect and humility. So I think we can use words like sacred without getting caught up into theism or religious belief. It's just a way of talking about what in Tillich's language would have been something that we uh, consider to be of ultimate concern, something that really deeply matters for us. So in what sense, then, is mindfulness of the breathing sacred? 
In what sense is it a, a, a divine abode? Like the other divine abodes or sacred abodes or dwellings, love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are Brahma Viharas. Uh, they are dwellings um, which we consider to be sacred. And this, I think, is fairly universal. Love, compassion particularly, equanimity, a certain balanced, poised um, uh, way of being in the world, not being pushed and pulled by our emotions and fears and desires. And, and joy and celebration in the success of others. That, that's the fourth one. And I'm not sure there are many other occasions in the canon where the Buddha describes mindfulness of the breathing in the same way. So again, I'm not going to try and sort of talk about this endlessly, but rather to leave this as a question um, that we can all ask more in terms of how we are practicing, how we're actually coming to terms with our life by coming to terms with our breath. Breath, life, completely inseparable. And in some ways, by focusing and by stilling and resting our attention on the breath, we come into a very intimate relationship with life itself. And perhaps therein lies the sense of touching something sacred. And finally, the Buddha speaks of mindfulness of the breathing as the dwelling of a Tathagata. Tathagata um, is one of these problematic words that has given rise to a huge amount of speculation as to what it means. Tathagata is the term that often the Buddha uses when referring to himself. Um, he does use the pronouns I, you know, I am going to go to Jetta's Grove tomorrow. He doesn't necessarily say the Tathagata is going to go to Jetta's Grove tomorrow. But he does often use, or the people who have edited the texts you know, attribute to him this expression, the Tathagata. Um, it's sometimes said to mean literally Tata, which means uh, like this or just so. Gata means gone. And this is sometimes glossed as meaning the one who has gone to what is just so the one who has gone to reality, or something like that. But I think that's very dubious. Um, I don't want to get into the semantics of all of this. But um, there is uh, a passage I found, in this case in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, where the Buddha himself says what the Tathagata means. And I think that's probably a better starting point than a kind of you know, technical analysis of the word. And this is what he says. He says, Bhikkhus, as the Tathagata speaks, so he does. As he does, so he speaks. Since he does as he speaks, and he speaks 
as he does, therefore he is called the Tathagata. In other words, the Tathagata means the person who is just so. In other words, there's no duplicity, there's no pretense, there's no um, uh, sort of mask being presented, there's no hypocrisy, there's no contradiction between what you say and what you do, what you do and what you say. And in, in Chinese tradition, particularly in Taoism, they have this expression, Chen Zhen, which is often translated as the true person. And I think in many ways that captures what is probably meant by Tathagata. Tathagata means the true person, the person who's true to himself, to others, who doesn't dissemble, doesn't uh, mislead, doesn't trick. In other words, it's about a kind of fundamental honesty, being completely honest with yourself. And not only mindfulness of breathing, but kind of any meditation in which you just sit down and confront yourself, in many ways you're choosing a sort of honesty. It's very difficult to dissemble and to pretend uh, that you're like this or you're like that when you're just sitting on a cushion watching your breath or feeling your breath in your body. You're exposed in a very um, immediate way, an unmediated way, to what is going on. And when you pay attention to how the mind reacts to this, very often the mind runs off into stories, into fantasies, into memories, into plans, a lot of which, if you, if you pay attention to it, has to do with uh, maintaining and developing and cultivating uh, my sense of being me. You know, what I'm going to say, what I did, what I'm going to do, what a wonderful person people must think I am, or what a terrible person people must think I am. But basically it's all about how you present yourself in the world, your place in the world. And so curiously we have an instinct uh, to be preoccupied with how we look, how we appear, both to ourselves and to others. And what we do in mindfulness of breathing, or pretty much any kind of basic awareness practice, is that we keep returning from that um, story or fantasy back to the primacy of just sitting here breathing, doing nothing, basically. But that doing nothing is not just a blank. That doing nothing is actually uh, opening a space of a kind of radical honesty with ourselves. And often what we find is not something we particularly like. What, uh, meditation can often be rather unsettling. We come, come a little bit too close to what's going on. It might be uncomfortable, it might be painful, but it might also be revealing of our distractedness, our kind of crazy mind running around, not being able to settle, even though that's what we've chosen to do. So the practice, therefore, I think, 
um, it's not so much it's the dwelling of the Buddha, but it's the dwelling of the true person, the person who's willing to be totally honest and transparent with herself. Okay, so um, we'll stop there today, and I hope that some of these reflections, particularly around mindfulness of breathing, um, will you know, be things we can reflect on and digest and practice uh, as we go through uh, our days together.